0: This episode of the Jewish Views contains discussions that some listeners may find distressing. The Jewish Views on Save Dave: How you could help 32-year-old David K following his recent diagnosis with stage four lung cancer. Jews Got Talent: Why Max's Foundation could benefit from the talent the community has to offer. And Karen Pollock from the Holocaust Educational Trust tells us about the potential plans for the new Holocaust Memorial.
1: But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. British Jews in the UK and Israel have been asked to help the family of a 32-year-old London-born father after doctors told him he had incurable cancer. Dave Kay, who made Aliyah nine years ago, was diagnosed with advanced lung cancer, despite never having smoked. His wife Emily has posted a fundraising video called Save Dave, which has so far got donations of around £45,000 towards advanced tests in America and costs not covered by insurance. The Sunday Times columnist, who was sacked after suggesting Vanessa Feltz and Claudia Winkleman are well-paid by the BBC because they're Jewish, has apologised. Kevin Myers says he believes his career as a columnist is over as a result of his controversial piece, which was in the Irish edition of the paper and online, from where it was taken down after complaints about blatant racism. The Sunday Times also apologised for the error of judgement that led to publication. A 96-year-old former Auschwitz death camp guard who was convicted of being an accessory to the murder of 300,000 Jews has been declared fit to go to prison by prosecutors in Germany. Oskar Groening was found guilty in July 2015 and sentenced to four years in jail. Groening, though, has remained free up to now pending an appeal. A spokesperson for prosecutors in Hanover said there should be appropriate medical care for him, but no reprieve on serving the sentence. The family of Raoul Wallenberg, the Swedish diplomat who saved tens of thousands of Hungarian Jews from the Holocaust, is suing the Russian government's security service, the FSB, to find out what happened to him. He was last seen in 1945 being approached by a Soviet soldier after the Red Army captured Budapest. The family hopes to access files containing original documents in the FSB archives. And finally, a famous picture of Albert Einstein sticking his tongue out at a photographer has been sold to an unknown buyer in the United States for £95,000. The photo, which is signed by the great man, was taken in March 1951 at Einstein's 72nd birthday party, where he apparently got tired of posing endlessly and hence stuck his tongue out. He apparently liked the resulting picture so much he ordered nine prints to give to friends. That's it. Here's Katie with the sport.
2: Hapoel Sheva are through to the Champions League playoffs after they beat Bulgarian side Lodgaretz on away goals. The Israeli champions lost the second leg of their third qualifying round 3-1, but progressed as a result of scoring in Bulgaria, meaning they now need to overcome one final tie to reach the group stages of next season's competition. Closer to home, the new Jewish Football League season will feature the fewest amount of teams in nearly half a century. With just under a month to go until the season begins, Redbridge C withdrew from Division 2, citing their demise to a loss of playing staff. The three divisions will now comprise of 29 sides, the lowest amount for more than 45 years. And finally, Israel will have eight athletes taking part in the World Athletics Championships in London. Six of them will be taking part in the marathon events, though their greatest hopes of a medal lie with triple jumper Hanna Nazievia Minenko, who won silver at the 2015 Championships in Beijing. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at jewishnews.co.uk.
0: Katie, thank you very much indeed. Hello there and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and online editor Jack Mendel. Welcome to you both. Richard, the front page is actually our main story on the programme this week. Desperately sad situation. 32-year-old David Kay really needs the
3: community's help, doesn't he? Yes, there isn't really much to add to what your introduction just said there's a very very sick 32 year old man called dave k who used to live in woodside park in northwest london made aliyah nearly 10 years ago now has a beautiful wife and a beautiful child and they live on a kibbutz he has been diagnosed with terminal cancer lung cancer despite never having smoked in his life They are trying to raise money now, the family, for all sorts of things, last gasp chance things, advanced tests in the United States, second medical opinions, etc. They've launched an online campaign. It's at youcaring.com forward slash save Dave, youcaring.com forward slash save Dave. There's really not much more to say. It's a helpless situation and we all feel powerless. But if you can perhaps help the family raise just a, a small sum, it would certainly go a long way.
0: Well, we're going to speak to Emily, his wife, a little later on in the programme. But again, Jack, there's not really much more that anyone can add to this. It's just one of those stories where we just look on, as Rich says, just almost helpless to be able to do anything. But yet we can all really relate to it and just reach out and want to do what we can.
4: Well, it's a slightly bittersweet situation for a newspaper because this is is where we really come into our own, trying to rally the community to get people to donate money to help somebody. And hopefully uh, we can get towards their $100,000, £75,000 target. At the time of recording this, they're about £65,000 in, so there's still a little, little way to go, but hopefully people can dig into their pockets and help donate.
0: Yeah, here's hoping. Well, like I say, we'll find out more about that story a little later on in the programme. Okay, let's have a look at some of the other stories making the paper this week. And one of the, the biggest stories that is actually even featured in the national press, never mind the Jewish press. And that's the one about Kevin Myers, the Times journalist, who no doubt is starting to regret commenting on the likes of Vanessa Feltz and Claudia Winkleman's BBC Pay.
3: Kevin Myers is, is not a journalist whose name I actually even recalled before this week. He's not someone I've, I've ever read, but I've done a lot of reading of his stuff in the last few days. In the Irish Sunday Times, he wrote a piece on the salary sexism row at the BBC, and he quoted, well, he, he said that uh, Vanessa Feltz and Claudia Winkleman, two Jewish BBC employees, were basically well paid because of their religion, and he went on to write, good for them, Jews are not generally noted for their insistence, on selling their talent for the lowest possible price. Now on face value, and the knee-jerk reaction was that this was outrageous, this was an anti-Semitic trope, this was typical, and the man needed to be fired, and that man needed to be sacked. It's actually not as straightforward as that. Kevin Myers, and I've been reading a lot of his stuff, he's actually quite a, in your face, very controversial, very provocative writer, and his previous work has actually been very, very defensive of, very, very proud of, and supportive of the Jewish community, of Israel. A lot of his background doesn't actually makes sense in light of uh, the words that he is being chastised for. So he has apologised, he's been sacked. Where the the blame has not been placed is with the editor of the Irish Sunday Times, the ultimate gatekeeper of everything in the paper. What should have happened here is a quiet word to him when the copy was filed saying, are you sure you want to put this line in? The rest of the column more or less stands up. That was the particular line that grated. And a, and a quick Word to the wise before publication would have avoided all of this.
0: But I suppose, to be fair, though, Rich, so speaking, as it were, on behalf of the editor who is obviously not here to defend himself, but you yourself are an editor of the Jewish news. And would you say that it's always possible to read through every single word for word? Do you not put some trust in the journalists?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, the Jewish news is slightly different to the the Sunday Times brand. We're hardly as uh, sizable, so it wouldn't be physically possible for the editor of the Sunday Times to read everything. But you would absolutely make a point of reading the most important things. That's the front page, the main news page leads, the editorial column, the the leader column, the voice of the newspaper, and absolutely the columnists. I'm sure the editor either commissioned Kevin Myers himself to write for the paper, or at the very least was aware of his penchant for for being a little bit more in your face, and would have treated with kick gloves a lot of what you said. So yeah, clearly, where was the editor in this process? Where was the sub-editor who would have headlined it, fact-checked it, uh, headlined it? There's a lot of layers here that this went through. But yeah, of course, the the ultimate responsibility lies at the editor's door.
4: I think what this also shows is that there's a big divide between kind of traditional media, newspaper media and online. Because when this was first released, social media, and especially Twitter, kind of went mad. It it spread like wildfire. And within 24 hours, he'd been sacked and he'd apologised. And the Sunday Times editor had apologised and he'd rang up the Jewish Leadership Council chairman and apologised. And only... 48 hours after when I'm sitting at my desk on Monday morning, do you hear a little bit more reflection and looking into his previous articles that show that he's actually not this big anti-Semite Holocaust denier. And I think that that's what's really missing online, especially there's not enough analysis of what people are actually saying. People take things at face value far too often.
3: Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, he's a very brave Writer, He's somebody who just grabs your attention right off the bat. He wrote a now infamous piece eight years ago in the Irish Independent, which I think was headlined something like, I am a Holocaust denier. But he wasn't actually talking about the fact that he denies the Nazi genocide. He's saying that, yes, the Nazis killed millions and millions of Jews, they killed Jews as as far as their hands would stretch, I think was uh, something along the lines of what he wrote. What he was saying is he doesn't agree that in a democracy, you can't have a free market on, on beliefs, on ideas, on opinions. And if you want to say fish ride bikes, you should say fish ride bikes. And if you want to say there was no Holocaust, you should say there's no Holocaust. You shouldn't be tried and you shouldn't be prosecuted for a stupid ideology or a stupid belief. That was the thrust of his piece. He wasn't saying he was a Holocaust denier, but then he was uh, accused of being so. So you have to read down a little to really get a sense of his message.
0: Goodness. Well, I'm sure that this story will continue to unfold and hopefully with a little bit of luck that the people will recognise the facts. But let's have a look very quickly, actually, because time is absolutely running away with us as usual. It's one of the stories that I believe you've written this week, Jack. It's 100 years on from one of the bloodiest battles of the First World War.
4: Yes, 100 years ago, the Battle of Passchendaele, thousands died, and many died on the very first day. And that's what I was looking at in my piece this week. I looked at four Jewish soldiers from Britain. One of them was actually Polish-born. They all fought for their country, and they all died on the very first day of this battle. And it goes through their aspirations in life. One of them wanted to be a rabbi. One of them was a teacher. One of them is memorialised in Belgium and neither of his parents ever got to see his memorial, you you get a sense of their lives and you get you get a sense of what they wanted to be and who they were. And then they're, they're not just names and numbers.
0: And what page is that on if people want to find out? That's on out. page six of the paper this week. Excellent. We look forward to reading that. Let's end on some happier news, shall we? Apparently, within the last week, four couples, no less, have celebrated their joint 50th wedding anniversary.
3: Yeah, a very unique symbol at Redbridge United Synagogue. Four couples, all celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary, all got married within a matter of weeks of each other back in 1967. So that's 200 years of wedded bliss celebrated on one day. So, of course, we asked them, what is the secret to a, a long and happy marriage? And you know what they all said? Well, to quote one of them, Mrs. Trannis, who is uh, married to Michael Trannis. I've been married, as I said, the golden wedding anniversary. Best advice is, and I quote, you shouldn't live in each other's pockets. Live your own life. That's what makes your marriage stronger. So the secret to a happy marriage, don't spend time together.
0: Excellent. Well, there we go. There's advice. You heard it here on The Jewish Views. Of course, though, Jack, thinking about it, people would be forgiven for thinking that in this day and age of what is quite high divorce rates and things like that, that perhaps that maybe we won't see this again in the future where people are celebrating 50 years together. People are waiting longer before they get married and marriages don't necessarily last that long.
4: Yeah, well, there, there are a couple of reasons why this might not happen as much in the future. I think people meet in different places, used to meet in a synagogue, and now people are going to university and they're meeting new people at university. And people's levels of faith are different too. We saw in the institute for jewish policy research report the other week that there are fewer people going to synagogues and that will have an effect on jewish marriage rates as well
0: interesting points as ever you raised. thank you both very much indeed that's where we'll have to leave it though for a look at the paper for this week but don't forget you can pick up your copy of the jewish news every thursday across london or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk As you've been hearing, British Jews in the UK and Israel are being asked to help the family of 32-year-old David Kaye after doctors told him he has incurable cancer. Dave was diagnosed with advanced lung cancer despite never having smoked, and now his family have launched the Save Dave campaign in a bid to try and help cover medical expenses. Well, I'm truly delighted to say that despite going through what must be a really difficult time, Dave's wife, Emily, joins us on the line now. Emily, can you perhaps just start by telling us where this all began? When did you first get the diagnosis or at least notice that something wasn't quite right?
5: In May 2016, we uh, went to Thailand, travelled to Thailand with our daughter, Noah. She was five months at the time. And we were there for the month in order for me to get my yoga teaching certificate. So I was doing a course there. And it was at that time that we started to notice Dave having difficulty breathing. When he would be lying down on on the bed, we could hear something in his lungs weren't right. It's weird that you think that you can hear something in the lungs, but but later finding out that the, the lungs were filled with water. So it makes sense that we were able to kind of hear something going on in his lungs when he would be lying down. And he was diagnosed with asthma 10 years prior. And so he was thinking that maybe it was just the change of weather or the traveling that was helping him, was not helping him in his shortness of breath. And just difficulties in general. So we kind of were treating it as much as we possibly could, but it wasn't getting better during the time that we were there. And the, the day after we landed from Thailand and we came back to Israel, he went straight to an emergency care and they took a x-ray of his lungs and told him that he needs to be admitted into the hospital in order to get the fluid in his lungs removed, which occurred because there were tumors in his lungs. Um, and then things just started unfolding from there. We we were told at first that he has a couple of lumps in his lungs. And then as they were doing more scans, we realized that it was spread throughout his body, including his brain.
0: This must um, just have been so surreal for you guys, because up until that point, I mean, apart from the diagnosis of asthma, Dave, relatively healthy? No no major health problems before then?
5: Not at all. Extremely healthy, living a healthy lifestyle, never smoked, wasn't into, never really drank. Yeah, it was, it was extremely shocking. And definitely something that we were questioning if this is, this is real, obviously, but is this sort of the right diagnosis? Is this something that, you know, what are we, what are we missing here? Because especially with lung cancer, there's this notion or stigma that people kind of put it on themselves because they've been smoking. But this is not the case and actually as we've learned more about cancer and lung cancer specifically there's so many cases where that it's based on dna and mutations in your body that causes the cancer and not you know not something that you've put on yourself which is again i think a stigma that people have when especially when they hear about lung cancer being diagnosed
0: and of course people are normally forgiven when they hear the dreaded c word Instantly, all sorts of things go through their minds. They are naturally terrified because it is such an unknown to most people until they actually go through it. And how would you say that you guys reacted? I'm guessing, as you've already alluded to, there was an element of disbelief. But once it did sink in that the diagnosis was correct, can you even begin to describe what goes through your mind at that stage?
5: Honestly, things were happening so fast and it was so overwhelming that we didn't really have time to think, or I didn't, I I could say for at least for myself that I didn't really have time to think about it. The first month that Dave was diagnosed, he was in the hospital in Tel Aviv. We had to relocate from northern Israel to Tel Aviv, and we ended up spending the whole summer in Tel Aviv while Dave was in the hospital. And we reached out to our immediate circle of friends, because neither of us have family, immediate family here. And I think just having them step up so quickly in such a, a sort of emergency situation really inspired me and motivated me to keep going, to keep getting answers, to keep sort of questioning what can we do to get Dave the best care possible. And it was through a couple of connections that we were then able to meet with Professor Nir Pellet, who is our oncologist now and who has been amazing throughout this whole treatment. So it's it's honestly, the last 13 months has been a lot of go, go, go. And both Dave and I are kind of doers. And this is sort of the test that we've been given, I feel at least to, to keep doing that, to keep finding answers and to keep questioning what is the best treatment option for Dave and how can we save him?
0: Well, speaking of save him, the campaign Save Dave is what you have started in a bid to try and raise funds. Could you maybe just tell people who maybe haven't gone through what you guys are currently going through and maybe aren't aware of the kind of expenses that cancer can cause. What are we talking about here? Why do you need to raise the funds?
5: So we've been lucky living in Israel to get great medical care and the majority of our medical expenses in Israel have been covered. Um, but there have been situations where we needed to get more answers that Israel just does not have the resources to. And we started seeing that we needed to spend extra money on certain things like getting blood biopsies done, where the results, the best results are coming from the US. So he would get, he got a blood biopsy done last summer, and we sent it to the United States. And it took I think, three weeks for the results to come in, but we needed to pay extra for the results to come from the United States. Same thing with the tissue biopsy, which he only just did in March or April, and the results needed to come from a great company that gives you the exact mutations that Dave has and what treatments are available to him. And these are all results that we then take back to our oncologist, and he can have a better idea as, you know, oh, okay, well, now we, not, we now we see you know why this treatment wasn't working before because it wasn't treating the mutations that we didn't know about until we did the tissue biopsy. How um, does the land lie so
0: now? How does the land lie now? What, what is the current situation in terms of state of play? How is Dave and himself?
5: It honestly changes day to day. I can never say he is this or he is that. Some days he's stronger and he is able to go out and have meals or, or see friends and other days it's more difficult for him and he's in bed, but he is always, always trying. He's always putting his 100% effort. It's just that sometimes his body is sort of able to do more and, and sometimes less. Today he's he did his sixth round of whole brain radiation therapy and that causes a lot of side effects such as fatigue and weakness. So the last few days he has been in bed more but same thing with chemotherapy which he will begin the day after he finishes his last round of radiotherapy and that also you know causes side effects that are difficult for him
0: how does it affect you when I, I know that obviously the emphasis is about dave dave is obviously the one that this is all about this story but obviously as his wife who's by his side all the time it must be a huge strain on you how does it affect you personally
5: it, again it, the the emotions are constantly changing sometimes i feel hopeless and scared and sometimes i feel motivated and and sort of ready to fight and i think it's natural to have these emotions kind of coming in sometimes i'm really depressed and sometimes i feel really positive the best way that i try to handle it is just allowing the emotions to come in and experiencing them as they are and as the as the true emotion as it is but also other things like doing yoga and meditating and just being around loved ones and our friends have been extremely helpful. Honestly, like I said, I would say that the the sort of day by day as I wake up and what gets me out of bed is trying to find the treatment that's going to work for Dave. So I'm constantly researching, speaking to other forums who have experience with Dave's type of lung cancer, other patients who have this exact type of lung cancer, other caregivers who have experience with this as well, and just trying to get as much information as possible. And I'm in constant communication with our oncologist about, you know, trying to do this or trying to do that. And as low even though we completely trust him and, and we know he's doing the best that he can, I feel like it's also up to me to find the answers that can save Dave.
0: Goodness me. Well, naturally, we just wish you all the best. And of course, Dave, and let's not forget Noah, And let's hope that the next time that we speak, it is for nothing but good news. But Emily Kay, thank you so much for speaking to us. If you would like more information on Dave's story, then please do go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you will find the link where you could donate if you so wish to. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Tony will be joined by retired audiobook reader Denise Assason and journalist and author Emma Klein. They'll be discussing the potential new Holocaust memorial, Plus, Community Editor Diana Toman will be speaking to Karen Pollock from the Holocaust Educational Trust about the new potential plans unveiled for the Holocaust Memorial outside the Palace of Westminster. But first, can you sing, dance, perhaps even juggle? Don't worry, I am asking this for a reason. The same reason that Max's foundation would also like to know. Have a listen to this, first of all. And I need to warn you that the following clip is... Could be distressing for people to listen to.
6: It was horrific. I actually don't think there's a word that's strong enough to describe what happened. You know, when we put him, he we went to bed, we said good night, sweet dreams, I love you, you know, the normal nighttime. And then a couple of hours later, when we went upstairs to bed, my husband went up first and he screamed my name I have never ever heard him scream my name like that flew up the stairs and Max was lying there we got him out of bed I was ringing 999 actually my daughter was as well we were doing trying to resuscitate him the person on the phone the uh, 999 operator talking us through what to do and then the ambulance, two ambulances turned up very, very quickly and they were working on him. And then we went to the hospital and they obviously tried, uh, but I think we, we kind of knew deep down I, that we'd lost him.
0: Possibly one of the most heart-wrenching interviews that we have ever had to do here on The Jewish Views. That was Shira Schiller, the mother of the late Max Schiller, who died suddenly following an undetected congenital heart condition. Well, the Hebrew Order of David are hosting an event called Jews Got Talent in a bid to try and raise funds for Max's foundation and subsequently for research into the condition that cut Max's life so horribly short. Arts editor Kate Fulton has been speaking to Stuart Stepsky from HOD to find out more about it. And Kate started by asking Stuart to tell us the purpose behind the event.
7: The money that's raised from this event, as well as many other events, goes to Great Ormond Street Hospital, where it looks into the causes of congenital heart disease and looks at research and funds research into helping prevent this happened to to other young children.
8: And this is quite a big charity.
7: It started only about, as I say, when Max passed away by his parent, Shearer. And yes, it's grown quite considerably in a very short space of time.
8: Excellent. So the proceeds of this event will be going all to that charity?
7: The majority will, the rest will be going to other Jewish charities such as Jewish Care and various other smaller charities.
8: Okay so let's talk about the event itself Jews Got Talent, sounds like Britain's got talent, is that what you're basing it on?
7: Well we started off with Jews Have Got Chulant but (laughs) we ended up with Jews Have Got Talent the event's going to be staged at the Radlett Centre in Radlett and it's on October the 22nd which is a Sunday, a Sunday night, and really, it's a platform for whether you're 12 years old or 102 years old to really present your talent that you've got. Just got to be Jewish. Well, we might have a well, rabbi, Jewish. Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> we might have a rabbi on standby who might do instant conversions just for the night. For so. that, right? But the idea is for people who've got some talent who would like to help to raise money for a very worthy cause. And at the same time, we will have some very well-known celebrity judges. And you never know, they might pick up on their talent and who knows where it could lead to. So
8: what type of talent are we talking? Is it mainly singing? Could it be dancing, acrobatics?
7: Everything. Singing, dancing, comedians, acrobatics, whatever you can think of, whatever you think you have a talent for, even if it's for balancing an egg on your nose for three minutes whilst humming the Hatikvah, that would be great. So we're looking for absolutely everything. Is this the
8: first time you've run this event?
7: This is the first time that we've run it. I belong to an organisation called the Hebrew Order of David, which is a group of Jewish gentlemen who get together, very similar to sort of Freemasonry, we like to refer to it as Freemasonry light. And what we do is we arrange different charitable events And we raise money for all different types, mainly for Jewish charities. But we do also raise money for Marie Curie and Macmillan Nurses, as well as doing things for Israel. And that's what we get together for. And that's what we do. So
8: that's really, this is going to be the first event that you've put on of its type.
7: That's right. Have you had
8: any indication of who's going to be appearing? I mean, is there there a process for, for auditioning?
7: Yes, we will be holding auditions in September. It will be actually the auditions will be held at Hartsbourne Golf Club again on a Sunday afternoon. And and I can give people the details after they phone me and then they can come along and audition. And hopefully, if they're good enough and we think they're going to be entertaining enough, then they will go on to appear on the show. We're looking for probably only about 15 to 20 acts for the evening. So it's, you know, if you don't think you're good enough, then don't come along. But if you think you're good enough, then definitely come along. And because can anybody watch
8: the auditions or is this just going to be a closed audition? It's going to
7: be closed auditions.
8: Right. And will you be judging that?
7: I'll be one of the judges, one of, yeah. Right. But on the actual night, we will have some quite well-known people who will be actually doing the can judge. Can you name names? Unfortunately not at the moment because there's several who... We'll be doing it, but it depends on their commitments, whether they'll be available on the night. OK,
8: and what about prizes? Do, do winners get anything?
7: Well, yeah, the first, I mean, obviously there'll be trophies being given out. There's possibility, but it hasn't been decided yet, of a cash prize for the first one, for the winner. We did discuss that they could have a contract touring all the Jewish care homes where they could appear for free, but that might not be so much a prize as uh, as a default. <laughs> It'd yeah, be that,
8: wonderful, though, for the people. Yeah, absolutely.
7: There, yeah. So, you know, that's what we're about, doing things. And as I say, these amateurs might think that it would be a nice idea to actually go and visit a few Jewish homes because they're always looking for people yes, because that's entertain. the sort of
8: thing that, it, that engenders. If you get used to going to homes and performing in, in a charitable setting, actually, that's the sort of thing that can lead to other people.
7: Definitely, definitely. And the, and the more you get seen, and even if people... Have the idea that they'd like to be professional but don't know how to how to go about it. The more you people see you, the more chance you've got of somebody actually mentioning, "I saw so and so at such a place."
8: Now, all and publicity it go for, is good publicity, absolutely,
7: isn't it? absolutely.
8: And tickets? Do you have to buy in advance?
7: Yeah, the tickets will be in advance. The ticket price, I think, would be twenty pounds a ticket, which I think is quite a reasonable price for a very nice night's nice entertainment.
8: So is this a typical kind of event that the HOD would put on?
7: This is a little bit of a step out of the ordinary. We do the normal things like quizzes and race nights and whiskey and biltong nights and different things like that. But this is the first time that we've done this Jews Got Talent. And by the way, if there's any gentlemen out there, because unfortunately it is restricted to men only, if they'd be interested in joining us, it's a great thing to do. We have a lot of fun together, and we do include the wives on different occasions. So if they're interested, then get in touch with the Hebrew Order of David. Stuart Stepsky from the Hebrew Order of David telling us about Jews Got
0: Talent, which although takes place in October, they want you to get in contact with them now regarding auditioning. So all the details can be found on our website, jewishviews.co.uk, if you would like to take part in what hopefully promises to be a very fun evening and, more importantly, raises money for a very worthy cause, jewishviews.co.uk. In just a moment we will be this week's Shmooze. Don't forget to tune in to our live stream of the Shmooze every Thursday from 7pm British Summertime. You can find the link on our website, jewishviews.co.uk, and it's just one of a number of ways that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk, or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. And of course, all those details can be found on our website. Now, you may recall a few months back, it was announced that a new Holocaust memorial was to be built by the Palace of Westminster. Well, this week, the potential designs for said memorial went on display at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. Among the attendees of the unveiling was Chief Executive of the Holocaust Educational Trust, Karen Pollock. Community Editor Diana Toman has been speaking to Karen to find out more about the potential plans.
9: Karen, please tell us more about how this wonderful project came about. Well, when it
10: was announced that there would be a Holocaust commission to explore how the Holocaust would be remembered in this country for future generations. The result of that commission was there would be a National Memorial and Learning Centre in the heart of London to make sure that for years to come, there's some sort of iconic space to remember the Holocaust. But in order to have that right iconic museum, museum or, or building, there needed to be a process in place. And so the UK Holocaust Memorial Foundation set up a competition where I think they had something like 92 designs come in for the design of what the Memorial and Learning Centre would look like. They've reduced it down to 10 designs with extremely high profile names, Anish Kapoor, Daniel Liebeskin, to, Norman Foster, to name a few. And these are now, these models of the of what the museum and memorial would be are all on display at the Victoria and Albert Museum. It's pretty incredible because what you're seeing there is, first of all, just some fascinating architecture and interest and I, I suppose like the concept of why different designs have been created. But what's fascinating about having these at the V&A is people are going to the V&A for all sorts of reasons. But I doubt they're going there to learn about the Holocaust. Exactly. And in fact, what you're finding is that you're finding visitors stumbling across this display, watching Holocaust survivor testimony and beginning to engage perhaps with a subject that they know about or not, but you know, giving it some time and attention that they didn't factor into their day and it's actually really heartening to see. I can
9: imagine. And I know that the shortlist is now 10. Is there any chance you could give us... Let's call it a snapshot of some of those 10.
10: Oh, it's very difficult for me to describe them, particularly as I'm not an architect or designer myself. But I think that they all, in their different ways, have tried to bring across different themes from the Holocaust so whether it is about the individual so when we talk about 6 million it's a huge number so somehow trying to break that down but the vastness and uh, you know is coming through in some of the designs for a lot of the designers i think they're concentrating on what was a human catastrophe so the horror of it and what i don't mean by that is graphic images because this is an architectural design but something that perhaps is a bit more shocking to the eye There are also some who are talking about, you know, I think who convey a sense of empty space. So that's about what was lost. I think that, you know, it's a very difficult thing, you know, certainly for somebody who isn't an architect or a designer or an artist. How do you convey the magnitude of the Holocaust, the horror that it created, the human stories, the geographical stretch that it covered in bricks and mortar, it's a very difficult thing to do. Exactly. Yet all of them, in my opinion, or certainly the ones that you know, I that really I, I remember very starkly, I think they they really do try and address some of those
9: challenges from from the subject. Am I right in thinking that this A list, if I can call them that, of world famous architects and artists have had to grapple with the unusual shape of the proposed site. And am I right in thinking it's the Victoria Tower Gardens bordering the Thames? So it's in the the Victoria
10: Tower Gardens is absolutely right, which is right next to Parliament, which in my view could not be a more fitting place in terms of when we're learning about the Holocaust, we're also learning about it as a warning from history. So to be right next to the heart of our democracy, I don't think the message could be stronger. It sounds um, like in ter- a perfect in terms of place, it, doesn't it? And in terms of the space itself, they all are looking at a design that you will see, but then it goes underground, which is where the learning centre would be. I mean, my view from the very beginning has been that as well as it being a go-to must-see place, i.e. you hear about this iconic building and you want to go and see it for yourself, I also hope it's going to be that sort of place that you stumble across. You may not have planned to go to see a Holocaust Memorial and Learning Centre, but when you're walking around Westminster, going to the House of Parliament, you know, on a, whether it's a school tour that then decides they also go to the Holocaust Memorial, or whether it's a tourist, do you find yourself learning and remembering in that way? So I'm really excited to know actually what the final decision will be. I'm sure.
9: In what capacity is the Holocaust Educational Trust involved?
10: We have actually been involved from the very outset. It was at our main appeal dinner in 2013 that the then Prime Minister, David Cameron, announced the plans of the government to explore how the Holocaust would be remembered in this country for future generations, very much in the knowledge of our work and how to enhance what we're already doing in schools across the country, but how to make it part of the nation's collective memory and really consolidate that mission. So really, from the very outset, we've been involved in the consultation that the Commission conducted, but also more recently, we've been encouraging all the teachers we work with to give their opinion and their feedback on these designs, getting them to do things in the classroom, getting students to consider and ponder what makes a good Holocaust Memorial. All our young ambassadors who visited Auschwitz with us, and we've taken over 30,000 young people, they've all been receiving updates and emails to feed in and give their point of view. And of course, at the v where the memorials are on display at the moment, it's our ambassadors who are escorting Holocaust survivors to speak to visitors as they come in. So they're not doing that every day, but we had just a couple of days ago, our young ambassadors sitting with a group of visitors and our Holocaust survivors, known as in this scenario as living libraries. So people are coming in and hearing from the eyewitness themselves what it was like during the Holocaust. So I would say we are quite, you know, we are heavily involved and quite central to this initiative. That's because we are absolutely certain that it's the right thing, that in this country, we have a memorial to the Holocaust, not only to pay tribute to those that were murdered, but also to honor those Brit survivors who came to this country and settled here, contributed to society, and also to recognize it's part of Britain's shared history. It was, in fact, Allied forces defeated the Nazis, British troops liberated Bergen-Belsen, the kinder transport came to this country, there are also some more difficult questions about what our role was in the Second World War and whether we could have done more. But it's part of who we are as human beings, but it also is about who we are as, you know, British people.
0: Karen Pollock talking to community editor Diana Toman there about the potential plans for the new Holocaust memorial to be built by the Palace of Westminster. If you would like to see some of the images of the designs, then do go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk.
11: You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Joining Tony Honigberg and me today is retired audiobook reader Denise Assason and journalist and author Emma Klein. And the subject today is based on what we heard Dana talking to Karen Pollock about. We now know the potential plans for a new Holocaust memorial outside the Palace of Westminster have been revealed. But the question is, how relevant is it? outside the home of British democracy. And Denise, you can start us with this discussion. Do you think it's an appropriate place to house such a memorial and why?
9: No, I don't really think it's a good place. But where else is there in London that is a good place? That's a Ever. good
11: question. But why don't, you think it's, why don't you think it's a good place?
9: Because I'm not quite sure how Jewish they all feel in there. Well, there's an awful lot of
12: Jews in there.
9: <laughs> yes, but I think they could find a better place.
12: But Denise, if we shouldn't worry about how they feel inside the Houses of Parliament, is that a good place or not? Or where, where would you put it if that's not a good place? Well,
9: that's place? what I was asked Emma.
13: Well, I wouldn't know. All I know, if it shows respect for the victims of the Holocaust and their descendants... Wherever it is is fair enough. To well, I money. think it's
11: I think it's an absolutely ideal place yeah. because it's outside the Palace of Westminster, which is the home of British democracy. Oh,
13: well, well, absolutely!
11: And these yes. people who were murdered were all murdered by the Autocrats Nazis. The Nazis, yes. And which was the exact opposite to British democracy, which was saved
12: by Winston Churchill.
9: Well, that is good point. True. Very good yes, point.
12: Uh, that is true. And so, it's very important to put it there. It's a good place to put it. It could be anywhere in London, really, I guess, couldn't it? It could be by the British Museum in Kensington. It could be... Could in one of the, the r- parks. It could, it could actually be... No, I think why? class Just point is a very good why? Because, because we are an open society and we are free to go anywhere. So you could put it absolutely anywhere in London. Because we're free. We a free society. We're not restricted by going yes, anywhere. Yes, we
11: all know that. But the fact is, by putting it, as I said a moment ago, by putting it next to Parliament, which is the place where our democracy has existed for many, 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 many years, if not centuries... That's the place it has to go.
9: Oh,
13: I
11: suppose, that's a I suppose...
13: very good point. I agree with Cl- I mean, it shows respect, and that is a very important place, as Clive said, the home of our democracy. And I think maybe that is the most convincing way of showing respect rather than if it was plonked in gold as green, sorry to be rude, that wouldn't be so... But uh, it could be Trafalgar Square or yeah, somewhere Drupalda. where a yeah, lot but, of people go. True, but I mean, I think the home of the democracy, as Clive said, is a good point. Quite yeah. interesting. If it's, yeah.
12: I mean, uh, the Holocaust Memorial is very relevant to Jews, but how relevant is it to the rest of British society?
13: Well, but there is a Holocaust Memorial Day in January in this country. It
11: has to be kept alive because the Holocaust is possibly the most ghastly thing that happened in modern Europe, in the world. And if you think about it, it wasn't just six million Jews who were murdered. There there were another four million other people. people. Poles and and gypsies. So it's absolutely essential that this should be kept alive. We talk now
12: we know we, we now include other genocides, though, don't we, as Holocaust, in Holocaust memorials?
11: Yes, there are other holocausts, but yes. there's never been one quite as bad as this. And I find it very frightening that I meet, I sometimes meet young Jewish children who don't know about the Holocaust. They're not taught no. it. Oh, yes, yes, that's very that true. That is a
13: bit disturbing, yes. 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 But yes. it's
11: not just the Jewish children who know about it.
13: No, I mean, it, for example, I don't think it was probably last year, not this year, at Holocaust Memorial Day, my husband, who's the son of Holocaust survivors, wrote an article for the Catholic journal The Tablet, which I often contribute oh, yes. to, and got so much praise from the editorial staff. So much praise. It was quite touching.
12: Did it get any comments? Uh, I know we're drifting off subject slightly, but did it get any comments from the readers? Or just um, readers
13: maybe from? there were some letters. I, I'm not you sure. Possibly. Have you read Hitler's oh, Pope? Was, no. Of well, I've book. heard of it. It's a, it so, I a very mean, the Catholics, were,
9: they also gave an awful lot of passports to the
12: criminals. Yes, they're, they're that's interesting. Well, there right? were a lot of, of righteous amongst well, nations, of so course. There, there were. were. Yeah. And, of course, so Pope
13: Francis, I think, is quite... Was he from Argentina? Mm-hmm. He's from Argentina. Like, oh, quite yes. close yes. to the Jewish community, yes. community there.
12: Yes, yes absolutely. No, he, so I, and I is,
9: thought, I think you're absolutely right. I think it is a good place. It's the
13: absolutely it?
12: yes. right
11: place. And, of course, it was
13: John the Twenty Third who made it quite clear that the Jew in, 19, in 1965 that Jews did not, no, was it Pope Paul VI maybe, but it was inspired by John the twenty the, the Jews did not kill,
12: kill Jesus. Jesus. Yes, yes. that, that
13: was, was also very, very important. Well, that's yeah. that's very important, very important. So, and
11: it's also important because sadly, very sadly, and that I was talking to some people about this the other day, the anti Semitism in this country, which oh. was very low, is getting
12: worse. Yes. Oh yes. It yes. is getting worse and worse. Will, yes. will having a Holocaust memorial then outside of Parliament will that increase anti-Semitism? Well, no, it, maybe not. It makes it
11: more public, I think, because what does stop, did stop anti-Semitism to a certain extent among people in this country who did not really know about the Holocaust was the people, the survivors. Who came and talked about it mm. publicly? Oh yes, not just to Jews, yes. to yes. everybody. Sure, yes. sure. Very but important. they
12: are now there. Very few of them yes. left. Sure. Very, very few. We're of them. working. Our, I am with my shore that I go to. We're, we're discussing whether to now have the children of survivors talking about their parents who survived the Holocaust. But did the parents talk much? I well, yes, oh, they, they a, didn't early on, but they have they did started, start to come that's out. An and it's nice to hear Tony's made. from the children. We haven't got quite got round to sorting all that, that out because mild. the survivors are dying off <laughs> and we mustn't let the stories die off with the survivors. Well, my so.
13: husband very much regrets, although he did find out quite a lot, that he refused to have his parents speak to him about the Holocaust because it was too painful. Whereas my mother-in-law and I communicated communicated a lot about it in whatever language. We didn't really have a common language, what a you know, bit of this and a bit of that, because I was Sephardi and our family hadn't suffered and I was very interested, so I heard all her stories. So very very interesting.
11: your family didn't suffer because the Sephardi in Zimbabwe, who all came from Rhodes Island, right. many of their relations who did not come to Zimbabwe were taken into concentration camp, yeah. and were murdered. And I met a man one day who had married when I was out in Zimbabwe, which is where I was born, and I was out there on a holiday. And I met a man who had been born on Rhodes Island and oh. who had been taken at the age of five oh, to Auschwitz and who oh, said
13: survived.
11: who okay. said that he had lived there and he was the only one of the children. five No, the only one of five survivors of all the Rhodes Island community, there were only five of them left. And if you go to Rhodes Island now, it is a very sad place because the synagogue has a congregation. And I'm talking about some years ago, but at the time I went there, the synagogue had a congregation of about seven people oh that's really, really sad really. isn't it there's a lot of so European that's countries why are. we get back to the subject that's why it's so important that this memorial is put next to the house where
12: parliament meets I think a very valid. Good do you think there would be in the position it's in such an open position they would it'd be open to vandalism Was or, that, or would, it would it be, be just like be, anywhere else it'll be protected anywhere it can be
9: yeah, yeah that's interesting. But very interesting what you said that the children didn't want to hear from the parents because it's usually the parents that don't speak to the children about it. Well, I it. think my
13: mother-in-law was willing to speak, but my husband didn't want to. As I say, much later. Well, I suppose because I had heard, he must have investigated. And he obviously knew the whole story. But he didn't really want her to tell Most of these
12: survivors that now go out and talk to schools also didn't want to talk. It was only the Holocaust Memorial Trust or Memorial Education Trust that they talked to them and they almost made them go out and talk to the schools yeah. and other places about their experiences. And once they'd gone out there once or twice to talk about it and then seen the reaction the, yes, of sure. people... And did you
9: know the word genocide was... Came from that from, from the Nuremberg Trials. Really? I'm reading East West Street. It's great, it, isn't isn't it? Isn't it and it's
13: uh, he was so I heard about it at Very yes. yes. interesting.
11: There was a time that I was invited a few year, two or three years ago to talk to and I'm sorry I can't remember her name. A very, very famous woman. She became famous who had been in Auschwitz and she for years did not speak about her experiences. And suddenly she decided to. And she told us many, many things in this interview I had with her. And she said something which I have never forgotten. At the end of the interview, I said to her, do you still believe in God? Because she came come from a very religious mm-hmm. family. And she said, when I left Auschwitz, I did not. I had become a complete atheist. But then one day I had a child and I held up my baby and I knew there was a God.
13: Oh, beautiful. Lovely story. Beautiful.
11: And that, I have never forgotten what
12: she said. I, I have interviewed a number of these survivors over the years for podcasting and radio and everything else with an audience of youngsters, usually 13, 14, 15-year-olds. And I've looked around at these audiences And some of the answers to my questions, I have seen tears coming out, not just the girls who who are often more emotional than the boys, but from the boys as well of that age, listening and taking in what the survivors have been saying Mm -hmm. and what happened to them. But tears, real tears, real crying. And, And I've seen some of them are just, you can't console them at all. Well, know? one soldier who was one
9: of the Americans who went in to rescue, I mean, Deliberate. into Auschwitz, he, he became really ill for the rest of his life, mm-hmm. just oh, seeing it. See and it. he was not a Jew. Yeah. Traumatized. Today, I'm think. reading
11: a fascinating book at this present moment, which is about Anne Frank. Oh, right. And it's by a German soldier. He was not a Nazi, but he was in the German army. And he's written this book with about the background to Anne Frank. And he is completely and utterly moving in this book because he has learned Mm -hmm. all these things from all the people he's gone to talk to who knew Anne Frank. This is the point that I think is so important. This is what the the monument is all about mm. as well, is that mm. it has,
13: mm. to has to be, be kept remembered
11: in the front of people's minds. Yes. Yes, yes. not for generations and generations. Gener- um, yeah, I agree. Yeah, well, I'm so. afraid then we have to leave the discussion. But my thanks to our guests, retired audiobook reader Denise Assason and journalist and author Emma Klein. Well, it's time now for our Rabbinic Thought for the Week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Michael Evan Dovid from Edgeware Masorti, Synagogue.
14: In Parashat Hanan, God promises to show kindness to those that love me and keep my commandments. Why does God have to distinguish between these two groups? Are they not generally the same? A Jew that loves God surely keeps his commandments, and somebody that keeps the commandments loves God, right? Through history, as today, Many Jews that claim to love God are not necessarily observant, and many Jews, zealous in their observance, seem to not understand the beautiful implications of a God that loves us. For the first group, the love of God turns into a kind of self-adoration, where God has to love us as we are. doesn't matter what we do. I feel Jewish. That's enough. God loves me in my way. Maybe this person keeps some customs because of their beauty, emotional strength, or wisdom. But there is no feeling of being commanded by a God that not only loves, but demands as well moral standards. By a tradition that requests the fulfillment of commandments as a concrete expression of ancient ideals. For the second group, keeping commandments becomes a way to see themselves as pious, where religiosity and the value of people are measured by the strictness of the practice. The commandments turn into a cosmic score where the one with most points win. Both groups are in danger of becoming a kind of idolatry. The first adores warm feelings and individual autonomy, the other dry practice and blind obedience. A traditional and full Judaism, however, as appears in Parashat by Hanan and as developed for centuries, insists in the fulfillment of commandments as a way of cultivating love for God and answering the divine calling for morality and justice. This Judaism promises meaning and continuity. We are the heirs of Abraham and Moses, of a rich internal life and faith developed through a deep ritual practice. The challenge of modern Jews is the same as always, to implement the teachings of Jewish tradition, to give directions to themselves and to others, to be a light in the world. Through leaving the commandments and offering our sacred actions as acts of love, we show our loyalty to our people, to our sages and our God.
0: Don't think there really is much more to add to that, so thank you very much indeed to Rabbi Michel Evan David from Edgeware Mazorti Synagogue with our thoughts for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks very much to our guests, Emily Kay, telling us about her husband Dave and the campaign Save Dave, to Stuart Stepsky from the Hebrew Order of David on Jews Got Talent, Karen Pollock giving us her reaction to the potential designs for the new Holocaust Memorial, thanks to our other contributors and, of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Tony Honigberg, Sue Greenberg and Harley Baptiste. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the option to listen to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the Studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave, if not a rather croaky one, but do make sure that you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.